Welcome to the Dogwood Podcast, a presentation of Dogwood Church. For more information, visit dogwood.church. We hope you enjoy the message. Good morning again to you. My name is John Warnock. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Dogwood, and it's my pleasure to be here with you this morning uh, as we study God's Word together. Uh, last year, about this time, during the uh, kids, our kids are in um, middle school when they had their winter break for a couple of days off, my family and I had the opportunity to go on like a short little weekend, couple of day uh, ski vacation up at Winter Place, West Virginia. Anybody ever been there before? Winter Place, West Virginia. So it's an easy shoot up the interstate. One of the things that we like most about that place is it's relatively affordable and it literally is right there by the interstate. So as you're on I-77, you go up into West Virginia, at least I think it's I-77, um, you go up into West Virginia and you turn to your right, there's the ski mountain right there. And so you don't have to worry too much about, you know, if the weather gets really bad or the road's going to close down and can I make it to the slopes and, and not get to enjoy uh, being there. Well, we drove up on a Saturday. We probably got to our hotel right around 3 o'clock. And we knew that there was going to be a blizzard that was coming in that evening. I say a blizzard, it's East Coast Standard blizzards. We knew there was a snowstorm coming in that evening. Um, the weather, all, I had forecasters that all said like 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, somewhere around there, be where you're going to be because it's going to get bad. So we get to our hotel, like I said, about 3 o'clock. And um, my friend who helped put the, organize the, the vacation for us, he, um, his job is he puts vacations or retreats together for student ministries. And so every once in a while I'll call him up like, hey, can we get in on something? So he did. Anyway, we met him at the hotel and I said, David, is there anything to do in this town? Because uh, we've got a few hours to kill. We're obviously not going to ski today. Um, what can we go do? Can we go bowling? Is there some place to go do something? He goes, well, have you ever been to Grandview State Park? And I went, no. And he goes, well, you should go. It's a Grandview. And I was like, haha, funny. But we decided to go because there was nothing else to do other than to sit in the small little hotel room that we were in. So this, I think, was supposed to have been about a 45-minute drive from our hotel to the state park. And uh, as we start our drive, it starts to snow a little bit. And I went, oh, isn't this cute? It's snowing. And it kind of looked a little bit about like the snow that we got just a couple of weeks ago, right? I mean, if you stayed up you know, like I did that night, you were wanting it to snow bad. And I remember turning on the lights out in the backyard, and there's just a few little flakes coming down. And that's about what it looked like. And I thought, okay, fine, no problem. We'll make it to Grandview. We'll see the Grandview. We'll turn around and come back. It's something to do. Well, within about 20 or 30 minutes of that, it was as if someone unzipped the clouds. And snow started dumping on us so hard that I literally couldn't see the front of my truck. We couldn't tell any longer where the side of the road was. It wasn't because the snow was so deep at that point. It was because it was just coming down so hard in all different directions with the way the wind was going. We had no idea where the road started and stopped. It was crazy. And I thought, I got my family. I've got this dude named David in my truck. I'm gonna, if, if we die, this is going to be terrible. If I, get, if I run off the road, this is going to be awful. So you know what we did? We turned on the GPS because we were like, all right, number one, we want to make sure we get back to the hotel as fast as we possibly can, or at least the shortest distance we could. And there was a little blue blinking dot in Google Maps that really became the blue blinking dot of life for us that day. Maybe, that may sound overdramatic. Maybe it wasn't life because we never went that fast, so if we would have crashed, we probably wouldn't have died, but we would have ruined my truck, and that would have been a bad thing. So, But it was the blue blinking dot of life for us, and it literally showed us if we were on the road or not. And it told us when we were supposed to turn. And I knew that even though I couldn't see that there was an exit right up here or right to my right, the GPS said there was supposed to be one there. So we trusted it. And it kept us on the road. 
It, kept, it helped us to know where we were going so that we didn't run off the road and end in some ditch. It got us back to the hotel. That took about two and a half hours. It should have taken about 20 minutes. But we made it back. And we weren't hurt. The car wasn't damaged. And then we got to sit in the hotel and eat crackers for dinner that night. And it was a great memory that we will have for forever. But the GPS saved us that day. But we come to a passage of Scripture today that for many of us is going to be very, very familiar. It's found in John chapter 3, verses 1-18. through 18. You can go ahead and turn there if you want to. Um, but this passage of Scripture really kind of serves as that blue blinking light of life for me. You see, it's a very familiar passage. Again, if you grew up in church or if you've been around, or even if you haven't, if you've gone to football games, you've at least seen John 3.16, the dude that holds it up right on the sign. You've seen that. It's familiar to us. But this passage of Scripture serves as a GPS for me in my life. In other words, there are times where life is hard, right? There are times, quite frankly, where I sometimes doubt God's love for me or God's love for my family. And I can go back to this passage of Scripture and it is a reminder to me of how much God cares for me. It is a reminder to me of when I need direction, I can go back and know that there's a God who loves me and cares for me and He will guide me. So this passage of Scripture really is for me a GPS beacon. It helps me to know that there is a God that is out there that loves us. We're going to dig into this passage of Scripture and hopefully help us all to have a little bit of a better understanding of it. Uh, it's, again, found in John chapter 3, verses 1-18. through 18. Let me read that passage for you. It says this, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is already old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and of spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus said. You're Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you don't understand these things? I tell you the truth, if we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into, the, into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of of God's one and only Son. Let me pray for us. Father God, as we study Your Word today, give us ears to hear what You are saying to us. 
God, help us to understand the meaning of this familiar text to, to many of us that are in this room. And God, because it's familiar to many of us, help us to not just go on autopilot, but instead to engage these verses with our minds. And as we do, God, I pray that you would help us to fall crazy in love with you. Lord, give us your wisdom. And we thank you in advance. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, so at the beginning of this passage, we're introduced to a character, a real person named Nicodemus. And we're going to camp out here for just a second because understanding what Jesus is saying is it's key to understand who he's saying it to. This man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling council, and therefore we know at least a few things about him. We know that he was, he was older. You didn't get to be a part of the Sanhedrin unless you were wise with years. We know that he was a guy because only men were a part of the Sanhedrin. We know that he was well off. He was probably very wealthy. He had resources. He wasn't worried about where his next meal was coming from. We know that he was educated. He knew the Old Testament Scriptures. And he was a part of the cultural elite. In other words, he was one of the people that in in that day and time that people would have looked at and said, I want my little boy to grow up and be like Nicodemus. He was that kind of person. In a lot of ways, in a lot of ways, he looked and acted like a lot of us do in our culture. Some of us aren't necessarily really old. Some of us may not consider ourselves wise. And most of us aren't too worried about where our next meal is going to come from. But on the outside, we kind of clean things up and we like to portray this image that we've got it all together. That everything is all good in our lives. Now this man Nicodemus, he comes to Jesus and he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God because no one could do the things that you're doing unless God were with him. And this is what Jesus says back to him. He says, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of heaven unless he is born again. Unless he is born again. And obviously Nicodemus struggled with that a little bit. He didn't understand what that meant. So we're going to camp out this morning and find out what does being born again mean. Because it is critical to understand this metaphor, to understand Jesus' message. We're going to look at the importance of being born again. We're going to explain what being born again is. And then we're going to look at how do we receive being born again. Well, let's first look at the importance of being born again. Let's first acknowledge that, that for some people in America today, this word comes with some baggage in our society. I was reading this past week, and as I, or this past week as I was studying for this message. I was reading one of Tim Keller's sermons. Tim's a, a pastor up in New York City. And he, he wrote about a study that he had read that said 70 to 80% of Americans don't want or would prefer for someone who is not a born-again Christian to live next to them. Let me say that again. 70 to 80% of Americans in this study said, I would rather not have someone who would consider themselves a born-again Christian to live next to them. And when I, when I read that, I went, certainly that's not right. Certainly that's not right. Why in the world would people not want born-again Christians to live next to them? Well, there may be two reasons for that. There's one, one of the reasons is that maybe there's this perception. Maybe there's this perception that only the really, really broken people need to be born again. I mean, only the people who are kind of like the drug dealers, the people who 
who are really, really, really messed up in our society, like the ex-convicts, they're the ones that need to be born again, right? Maybe that's what people think. They're the ones that are broken, and, I, and, if, and if I think those are the ones that are broken and need to be born again, I don't want someone that, with that kind of past living next to me. Maybe that's what people think here in America. But I think there may be another reason, and it's maybe people think born-again people are just weird. All right, I know in the first service, nobody wanted to raise their hand on this one either. So I'm going to say, don't worry about raising your hand. But how many of you ever watched the show The Simpsons? Some of you did. I saw one hand go up, and then they shot it back down really quick. All right, some people don't like admitting that. Whatever you think about that show, do you know his neighbor? Neighbor was what? Nobody's wanting to say because you don't want to admit that you watch it. Neighbor was Ned Flanders. Ned was the born-again evangelical Christian that lived right next to Homer Simpson that really kind of annoyed him, annoyed Homer all the time. And on the outside, you thought, man, this guy Ned, he's got it all together. He also was really goofy looking as well. He had this like overly thick mustache, these glasses, and he had like the perfect squeaky kids family. It was just, he was the annoying character. And I had to watch the show like all through its entirety, but I know later on, Ned made some terrible decisions and he did some terrible things. And he really kind of was this huge hypocrite. Because on the outside, he looked all this, this, this good and what he showed to, the, to Homer is like, hey man, life's all good. When you started peeling back the layers, he really wasn't. So maybe that's what people think about born-again Christians. It's possible that many of us hold to those two views of being born again. It's possible even, even for people who grew up in the church that think that, well, maybe only really, really, really messed up people. They're the only ones that really need to be born again. Lindsay and I have some friends that are that way. They think, when, when we try to share Christ with them and talk to them about Jesus and needing to have a relationship with Him, their words are like, you know what? We're okay. I'm not as bad as Hitler is. I'm not molesting kids. I don't cheat on my taxes. I mean, seriously, those are things that have been said to us. And they're like, we're okay. We're better than most of the people that are out there. They give money to charities. And they go, I'm okay. Yet, Jesus in this story, who's he talking to? Is he talking to the dregs of society then? Remember, he's talking to the guy Nicodemus, a religious leader who, again, if you had lived back then and you were a Jewish person, you would have said, I want my kid to grow up to be like Nicodemus. Jesus is looking at him, who was a Pharisee, Nicodemus, who kept the laws. He knew and studied the Scriptures. And Jesus looks at him and says, as good as you are, you've got to start over. You've got to be born again. All of Nicodemus' righteous acts, that all that he had done throughout his whole life, leading up to this moment, all really was for nothing. Jesus says it's about being born again. Jesus is telling you the same thing. He's telling me the same thing. For those of us that think we're not that bad or think that we've all got it together and that there's worse people in the world than us, so we must be okay, Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. It doesn't matter who you are. Whether you're the best, whether you're the worst, whether you're the average person, you've got to start over. You've got to be born again. Obviously, being born again is important. What does it mean then? Well, Jesus used metaphors to help us to gain a little bit of a better understanding. In other places, He talked about Himself as being the living water. In other words, that, that He could quench our thirst for that wanting more in life and quenching our thirst for needing forgiveness of our sins. He also referred to Himself as the light in other parts of Scripture. Again, a metaphor to help us to understand eternal life in Him. I think this term born again is best understood if we can break it down into four areas of meaning. The first area of this, being born again is morally transformational to us. Remember, Jesus was talking to 
Nicodemus. And he said to Nicodemus, following rules isn't enough. He didn't go to Nick and say, Nick, you've done a great job in life, man. Let me just show you the last little bit that you've got to do. He didn't say that to him. Jesus, I think, looked at Nicodemus with a lot of love and compassion and said, you've got to start over. You need a fresh start. You've got to be born again. Nothing that you have done counts towards being a citizen in the kingdom of heaven. Nothing you've done counts. I know, I, I know that's going to disappoint you, Nicodemus. And my heart breaks over that. But, but you need to be born again. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, Jesus is telling you, Jesus is telling me that Christianity is not an addition to our lives. It is a whole new thing. Again, the very best person in the world, do you know what they need? Think of the very best person that you can come up with in your mind. You know what they need? They need to be born again. Think of the very best, the, the, the very worst person that you can think of in your mind. You know what they need? They need to be born again. Now think of all of us just average people. You know what we all need? According to Jesus, we all need to be born again. So if you've been living and thinking that I'm just going to make it through life by showing up at church and being a part of a life group and kind of being a good citizen, God's going to love me and it's going to be okay. Jesus is saying, no, you've got to be born again. Nicodemus, had they had life groups back then, he would have been a part of one. More than that, he would have led one. It's not about just church activity. It's not about just being good. It's about being born again. It is about being transformed morally. It's also mentally transformational to us. When we are born again, we get a new consciousness, a new life. We become a new person. Paul writes about this in the New Testament for us to help us understand it. Colossians chapter 3, verse 10. Paul's referencing here. He says, And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of of its creator. And then he also writes in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 24. It says, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Both of these verses are referring to a new person that we get to be when Christ transforms us. When we are born again and we are transformed, we get to be a new person. Another example that I read about was about one of the early church fathers. Now to be an early church father, all that really meant was that he would, they were a scholar, they were a theologian. They were incredibly important in the formation of the church. This guy's name was, if you're from Georgia, Augustine. If you're from somewhere else, you say it a different way that's the right way, but I'm from Georgia, so I'm saying Augustine. Alright? And before he became a follower of Christ, he was a little wild. Um, matter of fact, he described himself as a, as a sex addict. And apparently he had plenty of partners in all of the different towns and cities that he would go around to. Well, Augustine becomes a follower of Christ. God transforms him, but yet he still is going to do in these towns on, on business or teaching or whatever it was he's doing. And, and he tells the story. He says, I, I go to this town and one of his old partners runs up to him starts talking to him, expecting that they're going to get to do whatever it was that they had done before. Augustine's very kind, very cordial to her. And as he turns and he bids her farewell, farewell, and he walks away. 
she's kind of stung. She's like, wait a second, what's up with this? And so she runs after him, and she kind of gets in front of him. She goes, Augustine, it's me. Aren't we going to go do these things that we used to do? And he looked at her, and he says, I know it's you, but it's not me. You see, he was saying to her, look, I've been transformed. Now, Augustine, certainly, he wasn't a perfect person after his transformation. But he's saying, I'm a new person. I don't, I'm not doing some of those same things. God has transformed who I am. God transforms you as well when you are born again. But it's also supernaturally transformational. When Jesus uses the term born again, He is literally talking about a new life that is put into each of us as followers of Christ. Write this passage down, and we don't have time to look at it in depth. But Ezekiel chapter 36 and 37. Read it later on because it's a fascinating story of how God the Holy Spirit brought new life back into dry bones, representing dead people. And because of the Holy Spirit, God brings them back. An incredible story that we, you could probably do a whole sermon just on that. But it's this new life that God brings to people when you are born again. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23 tells us a little bit about this. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23 says, For you have been born again, there's that word again, born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring Word of God. This verse is teaching us that when we become followers of Jesus, God puts a new seed into us. He changes who we are. He doesn't just hope that we get modified. Let me use this illustration for you. And again, it's a little silly because these things won't grow here. Let's assume for a second, for the sake of argument, that orange trees would grow here in Fayette County and produce fruit. I don't think they will because otherwise we probably would have planted some out in our orchard. But if you could look out there, if there was a window there and you looked out and you saw the orchard, Let's just say that that's the spot where the orange trees could grow. How would we go about putting orange trees out there? Would we go out there to our apple trees and kind of cut them back a little bit, fertilize them a little bit more, put some orange peel at the bottom of the base of the tree, and just hope and pray that they start producing oranges? Would that work? No. Absolutely not. I mean, that would actually be silly. Nobody would do that. What would you do? You'd go take the apple trees out. And you'd put new trees in, right? That are going to produce oranges. That's what happens to us. When we are born again, God God takes the apple trees out of us and He puts the orange trees into us. You know what I'm saying? He changes us spiritually. Not only is it morally and mentally and spiritually transformational, but it is foundationally transforming. Nicodemus had acknowledged that Jesus was a good teacher. They're all throughout history have acknowledged that. Jesus' response to him when he said, Jesus, we know you're a good teacher. Jesus' response said, No one can see the kingdom unless he is born again. At first glance, it appears a little bit that Jesus is changing the subject until you read further a little long into the passage. When you come to verses 14 and 15. Jesus refers in verses 14 and 15 to an Old Testament story that happened that is found in Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. Let's camp out here for a second. You don't have to worry about turning there uh, for today just for the sake of time. But let me tell you what happens in the story of Numbers 21. It's It's the history of the Israelites as they're wandering around 
in the desert. Now, some of you might go, hey, Israelites were wandering around the desert. Why were they doing, that, doing this? The Israelites were the people of God. They had been enslaved uh, in Egypt for many, many, many years, and God released them from that slavery. As they were being released, they looked to the promised land and, and didn't have faith in God, so God says, okay, you're not going to have to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And then I'll let you enter into the promised land. Well, as they're wandering around these 40 years, God is providing for them every need that they would have. He's providing food for them on a daily basis called manna. He provides for all that they need. He's leading them and guiding them, even though it's a 40-year journey. And the people start to grumble and complain. They're weary of traveling. They're tired of the manna. And they grumble to Moses and they say, man, why did you bring us out here to die in this desert? We would have been better off in Egypt. Think about that for a second. They think they'd be better off going back as slaves in Egypt. But doesn't sin do that to us all? Sin makes us ungrateful. It makes us feel like nothing we have is good enough. It, it always leaves us wanting something more. And that's the way it was actually if you go back into Genesis and you look at the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. They weren't satisfied with all that God had provided for them. They were living in paradise. In the Garden of Eden, where everything was there for them. Yet God had told them, don't eat of this one fruit of the tree. And they were like, yeah, but we know better. We want our eyes opened. We're not not satisfied with all that God has given us. We want something new and different. So they went and ate of the tree. And when they disobeyed, sin ripped into creation. Well, that's what's happening here with the Israelites in Numbers 21. God was providing for them. And they're grumbling and they're upset. Well, to get the people's attention, you know what God did? God sent snakes among the people to lead them to repentance. Now, the Hebrew word for this particular kind of snake was a seraphim snake. Now, some of you, you're going, wait a second, I've heard that word seraphim before. Why is that familiar? Well, other passages of Scripture use that word to describe angels sometimes because when the angels showed up, oftentimes there was a burning or fire around them, something that looked like fire that was around them. And so people would describe them as the burning ones, the seraphim. Well, these snakes, they were called seraphim snakes because when you got bit, you know what happened? You developed this incredibly, terribly high fever. And then you developed this incredible thirst. And then you died. It was an awful way to die. And so the people kind of come to their senses and they go, wait a second, we've rebelled against Moses, we've rebelled against God. So they go to Moses and say, Moses, would you please, 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 please talk to God and ask Him to remove these snakes from us. God tells Moses to do this. God says, Moses, make a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. Now, scholars tell us this pole was really shaped more like a giant T, a little similar to what a cross would look like. And so Moses formed this bronze serpent and then tell the people, when they get bit by the seraphim snake, tell them that all they need to do is to look at the bronze serpent on that pole and they won't die. They'll be cured of the thirst. They'll be cured of the fever. And they won't die. Now let's put ourselves back in those people's minds. When they heard this, you think some of them went, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I'm telling you, I do. I mean... I would have thought that. I'd have gone like, seriously, God? Couldn't you just taken the snakes away? Couldn't you just given us the antivenom? Couldn't you have showed us what plant to eat, what to put on there, or however you're supposed to cure it? I didn't do that. God says, no, here's how you're going to survive this. 
I'm going to put this serpent on a pole and all I want you to do is to look at it because looking at it is going to indicate your faith in me. And you'll be healed. So as crazy as I think that sounds, had I lived back then and I got bit by one of these seraphim snakes, do you know what I'd be doing? I'd be doing everything I can to look at the pole. And if you were in my way, I would jump on your back and push you down so that I could see the pole. I'd give you the bow to get out of my way as I'm running to it because I got bit by the seraphim snake and I don't want to burn up and die. I'd be doing everything I could to look and keep my eyes on the pole that God provided. They didn't have to rub it. They didn't have to perform. They didn't have to say anything. They simply had to look at it indicating their belief, their faith in God. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, Just as God provided for the Israelites to be saved from their sin and this death by these seraphim snakes, that there was going to be a provision made for people that would be put up on a pole or a cross. That if people would simply look to the cross, specifically Jesus on the cross, that they would be saved. They wouldn't have to die for their their sins. Their, Their thirst would be quenched. There wasn't a magic formula that Jesus gave him. Jesus is simply saying, look to the cross. Look to Jesus on the cross for your salvation. Because we've all been snake bit. We're all burning up with this fever. And if you don't look to the cross, if you don't look to what Jesus did on the cross and put your faith in Him and Him alone, it will burn you up and you will die in your sin. So how do we receive this being born again? Jesus answered this question with a story that He referred to in Numbers 21. We simply put our faith in Him. We simply put our faith in Him. That's how we're born again. We're born again by putting our faith in Him. We repent. We realize that we're snake bit. We realize that we're in trouble. We realize that we're separated from God. And we say, the only hope I have is to look towards the cross. That's it. We look to the cross. Our sins are forgiven. Our thirsts are quenched. Now comes one of the most famous verses in all of the Bible. John chapter 3, verse 16. It says this, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And then on into verse 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Now this passage is important here. Because remember, Jesus is still physically speaking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus would not have had a problem. And he would have had no trouble believing that there was a God who loved the people of Israel. That was not a foreign concept to Nicodemus. But Jesus is clearly here telling Nicodemus that this offer of salvation is going to be for all people. All people, not just Israelites. Not just a small group of people. And that is incredible news to us today. So maybe this morning you realize that you are kind of like Nicodemus. Maybe you realize this morning that you've kind of been living life as Nicodemus did. Doing all the quote-unquote right things. Going to church. Being good. Not speeding. Whatever your list of good things are, whatever all of those things are, you've done all of them. And maybe you've been living like Nicodemus. But you know what? Jesus would say to you, and what He is saying to you, you've got to repent. 
of your sin. And you've got to look to the cross. You've got to turn from this self-reliance. Ultimately, that's really what Nicodemus was doing. He was relying on self. He was relying on religion. He wasn't relying on Christ. And you've got to turn from that sin of relying on self and turn towards Jesus and look to the cross. Maybe this morning, maybe this morning you're you're the kind of person that says, you know what, I have no trouble believing that I'm messed up. Matter of fact, I'm not even a good person. If you were to peel back the layers of my life, you'd tell and see that I'm a terrible person. If that's you, you know what the good news is for you? All you do is you look to the cross. And your sins are forgiven. Your salvation and the, the person who you think is very, very good, your salvation is the same. You've got to be born again. You look to Jesus on the cross. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads for just a few moments and close your eyes. As you're doing that, I'm going to ask the band to go ahead and make their way up here onto the stage. I want to give you an opportunity this morning to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Whether you are more like Nicodemus or more like someone who goes, I have no trouble believing that I'm a person in need of a Savior. You simply need to tell God something like this in your own words. And let me just tell you, it doesn't matter if you get these words right, just right or just wrong. They're not a magical prayer incantation that you have to say just right. God's concerned about what's going on on the inside of you. But you can tell Him something like this, Lord Jesus, to the best that I understand it, I ask You to come into my life to be my leader and forgiver. I look to the cross and what You did on there for me. And I put all of my faith and trust and belief in You. In You alone, Jesus. I can't do it on my own. God, thank You for giving me of my sin. Now listen, if you prayed that prayer, I want to ask you to do something. I want to ask that you would let us know about it because you see, our church exists to help people know and love God. And to grow in that, know, in that love for Him. On the back of your communication card, there's a box that you can check that says, today I'm committing my life to Christ, or today I'm becoming a follower of Jesus. If you'll let us know about that, we'll get in contact with you this week. We'll give you some resources, and we'll help you grow on that journey of following God all the rest of your days. Lord Jesus, We thank You for the cross and the work that You did on it for us. And we put all of our faith in You and in You alone. God, thank You for loving us. It's in Your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Dogwood Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the message. For more information and other sermons, visit dogwood.church. If you'd like to give to Dogwood Church, you can use your smartphone and text keyword Dogwood to 779-77 or click the Give link online. You can now download the Dogwood Church app for Apple and Android devices for podcast, video, and more.